Some folks are worried about the student loan mor moratorium, um, but that is such a near-term silly concern because yes, SoFi built its business on the back of mm. student loans, but that's like saying Amazon built its business on the back of selling books. They did, mm -hmm. but books are what? Maybe 0.1% of Amazon's business today, 0.01% if that, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's an afterthought. In 10 years, the student loan business is gonna be an afterthought for SoFi. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing, a weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by the one, the only, Luke Lango. Luke, how are the bips doing today? Uh, good bips, Aaron. Good bips. We're on a... Bit of a tear. March 14th seemed to have been a uh, local bottom in the markets, and it's been a uh, pretty ferocious rally since then. And today he's continuing that rally, another big green day across the board. So we're all smiles over here. I think today was the first time I looked at my, my portfolio and everything was in green for the first time, I think, ever. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a powerful two weeks, two weeks and change. Um, you know, a lot, a lot has changed. A lot has happened and we'll get into that later. So I'll, I'll let you take it from here, Aaron. Definitely. I'm looking forward to getting into all of that. Um, but in just a few moments, if you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to like and subscribe to get hyper growth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, we got a ton to cover today, so let's just dive right in with SoFi. Um, it's one of your uh, long-term winners. The last time we talked about them, we talked about the hype, the idea of it being kind of one-stop shop banking. You call it the Amazon of finance uh, with banking and stocks all in one app. I know you love the talent that's there. I know that so that you use it. And uh, before we kind of get into what's going on with SoFi and fintech as a whole, can you talk a little bit about your perspective as a user of SoFi, um, divorced from how you look at it from an investment analyst pers uh, perspective? Uh, yes. Well, um, one of the core beliefs of mine from an investment strategy perspective is that you should invest in products and services that you love because that means you're going to really believe in that investment. A product or service that you love, there's a reason you love it. If you believe the reason you love it is a reason other people are going to love it too, that means more and more people are going to use that product or service, which is going to allow that company to generate more revenues. And if the business model is scalable, it's going to allow that company to generate more profits, which will lead to a higher stock price. So it's generally a good rule of thumb to, if you love the product or service that you're using, buy the stock behind that product or service. So from my perspective, the journey I've had as a SoFi user runs parallel to the journey I've had as someone who's a huge advocate of SoFi stock. Um, and the, in a nutshell, the thesis is consumer banking sucks. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whatever you use, 
consumer banking these days sucks. It was built in the 1900s by folks that don't understand technology. It's not digitally native. It's not tailored to the modern consumer. It's not mobile friendly. They're trying. Yes, they're trying, but they're bankers. They're not engineers and they're not acquiring the talent necessary to build digitally native 21st century modern banking, consumer banking solutions for folks like you and me, Aaron, who grew up on mobile applications, social media, we need something different. We want something different. That something different is SoFi. SoFi is a digitally native, all-in-one, mobile-centric, mobile-first finance application where you can store your money, where you can trade stocks, where you can buy cryptos, where you can earn yields in cryptos, where you have a credit card, where you can get loans, where you can set up, uh, they call it relays, where you can set up um, uh, spending plans and budgets. You can do all this in one app. It's so intuitive, it's so friendly, it's so nice, it's easy to use. Their point system is totally transparent. It's totally understandable and digestible. Their auto pay features are seamless and easy. It is literally everything that's wrong with whatever consumer banking application you're using today, SoFi has fixed it. And they didn't fix it because they got lucky. They fixed it because they built a company from the ground up that is tech first with software engineers, with people that built Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It is a bunch of social media engineers here that came together and decided, let's make a social finance application. SoFi, short for social finance, for those of you who didn't know. So this is really a social finance application. We see it as the future of banking. We see it as the Amazon of finance. This is going to be a huge, huge company one day. We're talking 20, 30, 40 million users. uh, And we think that this stock is going to be one of the biggest winners of the 2020s. Pounding on the table, totally bullish on the stock. Absolutely love it. So what would you say to somebody who, you know, has a has their own bank, has an app that they again, they're intuitive, they know how to get to their accounts, they know how to transfer money. Again, it may not offer all of the things that that you're talking about, but maybe they're not into investing in the stock market and buying cryptocurrencies. What's the what's the driving force between making a switch from a traditional traditional banking app to SoFi? Um, yeah, so I mean, there's a few things. For me, it's really just the the mobile friendliness of their application of the platform. Um, it is, it's all digitally native and it's all mobile. So I go on, to, it's, I mean, it's so easy with their applications. And I know Bank of America has an app and all that stuff, a lot of you do. But the SoFi app is just so easy to just log into. It's got the face ID. It has all your applications just across the board. It's, it's so easy to use on a phone. And that's what made it for me the my favorite banking application. I didn't go with SoFi all at once in the beginning. I was kind of like splitting across multiple bank accounts and testing out various different things. And the more I use SoFi, the more I realize this is so easy to access from my phone, which is where I do everything these days. Whereas the other apps, mm-hmm. the other banking apps were quite honestly pretty crappy. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. that's not a shock because they're not built by a bunch of really talented software engineers who built social media companies. They're built by bankers uh, and bankers who then hire software engineers and are directed by the bankers. So it's built like a banking application, whereas SoFi is built like a social media app. And what do you like to use more? What do you spend more of your time on every single day? TikTok or Wells Fargo? 
right? You spend more time on TikTok, mm-hmm. spend more time on Twitter, on uh, Instagram. This feels like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's almost that addicting of an interface. It's got the education. The education is a huge component for people that I've recommended this to. They have this whole thing of they're filling this file of educational content, educational content, teaching you how to invest in cryptos. What are cryptos? What is staking? Mm-hmm. What are yields? What, what are dividends? How does stock trading work? You know, what do taxes look like on stocks? These are questions that everybody has, but a lot of people are afraid to ask and they don't want to sound dumb. Well, SoFi doesn't force Mm -hmm. you to ask. You just have to go onto the app and you can read all this information and get smart, get money smart, get your money right. And so I really like that aspect of it for for a lot of folks. I think it's really cool. And then they do have some great, you know, 1% APY. They have 2% cash back on the credit card. So, I mean, there's a lot of good perks that are part of the program as well. And when you put it all together in just one application, all these things, there's nothing else in the world that's quite like it. And I think that's why a lot of people are going to gravitate towards it. Again, we say Amazon of finance. Why do people go to Amazon? You could buy anything on this one website. You know, it wasn't like Chewy or Wayfair or whatever. It was all in one. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want, you can go to Amazon and buy it. Mm-hmm. Whatever your money needs are, you can go to SoFi and get that money needs served. Whether it's trading stocks, trading cryptos, earning 1% APY, getting a 2% cashback credit card, having a, an on-demand credit card or a debit card, whatever it may be, you can go to SoFi and get that in one single mobile application. Uh, the sign-up process is super easy. So from beginning to end, I've had no problems with the with – the, uh, the platform. And that is very, mm-hmm. very rare for uh, a banking application, as you probably know. And people hate consumer banking applications <laughs> these days. And mm-hmm. actually, one of my analysts just sent over a survey that was conducted, uh, I think, re- like within the past few weeks. And it shows that something like 26% of Gen Z and millennial consumers would switch their consumer banks to a, another consumer bank with a better mobile application. So it's mm-hmm. not just that is saying, hey, mobile-centric, mobile-friendly is super important. Surveys are cooperating. This is a sentiment that is universally true. And SoFi dominates mobile-centric. SoFi dominates mobile-friendly. They're going to win a lot of consumers that way. And that scale is going to allow them to offer even better perks and better features down the road. So we are super bullish on the stock long term. So when you call it the the Amazon of fintech, and we look at what Amazon did in the consumer market, it it's dominating. It's the one stop for everything. We use Amazon every day. Is SoFi going to end up being that one stop shop where it takes over and there's no more Robinhood, there's no more Coinbase. Everybody's just going to SoFi, or are there going to be other um, challengers to the to dethrone SoFi? Uh, we think the 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 market that SoFi is going after is hyper competitive. Make no mistake about it. You have uh-huh. so many different mobile friendly finance apps, digital finance apps that are trying to do what SoFi is doing, but no one is doing it at the level SoFi is doing it because one, SoFi has the best leadership from their CEO, their whole board, the entire C suite, super experienced people. That's a combination of Wall Street veterans and technology gurus put together. It is a dream team up there. Then you have the employee base, which is again, as we said before, a bunch of software engineers from these social media companies. So they have the best team in place. You know from our previous podcast that we are huge believers in the team. SoFi's team is unrivaled. 
in the digital finance space, in the fintech space, trying to do what they're doing. Uh, second is the amount of resources they have raised and the resources they have at their disposal. They've raised a ton of capital. They're deploying all that capital. They have the bank charters, right? They have all the pieces in place to actually become what they want to be, which is the mm-hmm. new bank of America. Uh, and as other competitors in the space do not have those resources or assets just yet. And while they might get them uh, one day in the future, at that point in time, SoFi will have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million users. And it'll be such a long lead for SoFi, competitors are going to have trouble playing catch up. Um, and then the third thing we really like about SoFi relative to the other competitors in the space is that their application is, again, very, very, very strong. We've tried the other applications. There are just there are things that are either the app bugs out or the credit card doesn't arrive on time or there's something there's a payment error. There are, we've tried the other ones and there's always errors that come up. With SoFi, in my experience, in my analyst team's experience of the people we've recommended our entire circle that is trying SoFi, no one has had any problems with this from beginning to end. And so because of that, that flawless experience, that's something no one else has really mastered. And that's why we think SoFi continues to crush it um, in the market. Now, well, for what it's worth, something I do want to add here is we've talked a lot about insider buying over the past few weeks, right? This huge insider mm-hmm. buying surge we're seeing hyper growth tech stocks. And that has coincided with, unshockingly, a massive mm-hmm. rally in hyper growth tech stocks over the past few weeks. The mm-hmm. biggest insider buying that we've noticed, the most notable insider buying we've noticed is in SoFi. The CEO, mm-hmm. Anthony Noto, who's the former CFO of Twitter, um, he is buying shares left and right, hand over fist. Um, board mm-hmm. members are joining him. Other C-suite members are joining him. There's a lot of insider buying going on at SoFi. That's a very bullish sign. We want to line ourselves up with those people. We think that they're going to make a lot of money in the long terms. By lining up with them, we think we will too. So hugely bullish on SoFi. I love what's going on there. Um, think the stock is bottoming out, ready to rebound. Some folks are worried about the student loan mor- moratorium, um, but that is such a near-term silly concern because, yes, SoFi built its business on the back of student loans, but that's like saying Amazon built its business on the back of selling books. They did, Mm -hmm. but books are what? Maybe 0.1% of Amazon's business today, 0.01% if that, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's an afterthought. In 10 years, the student loan business is gonna be an afterthought for SoFi. They used Mm -hmm. it as their hero product to get into the market, to win uh, brand notoriety, to win market share. It's been great. Now it's kind of struggling because of some political stuff. Okay, let it struggle. SoFi doesn't care. SoFi doesn't care because that business was just to get here. It's not what's going to drive them to the next level. That is the consumer banking. That is the stock trading. That is the crypto stuff. That's the stuff that's going to get to the next level. That's the stuff they're knocking out of the ballpark right now. And that's why, despite that student loan moratorium being extended, the insiders are buying today because they don't care about what has happened. They care about what will happen. People who are focused on the student loan moratorium are backward looking. That is not the way to be with this company. Got to look forward and looking forward. There's a really bright future with SoFi. SoFi stock below 10 bucks may be one of the best stocks to buy ever in the history of the stock market. I'll pound the table on that. (laughs) Well, with the concept of, of looking forward, how are legacy banks 
doing right now to look forward through this transition? Are they, you know, trying to put that infrastructure in place where they have a better user experience in their apps? Or are they just kind of doing their thing day to day and saying, oh, this is just another trend. We'll be fine. We'll weather the storm because we've been around forever. Yeah, no, um, I think they're definitely taking both approaches. It's a split. It used to be this, like, we're not going to bend the tech. Like, we are banks. We're not a tech company. Then they started losing a lot of talent to Silicon Valley. So Wall Street started to bend and be like, we need to hire more software engineers. We need to digitize. We need to uh, make ourselves a bigger tech, have a bigger tech focus. A lot of big banks are making those investments. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be as successful as the tech startups because you're graduating Stanford, you're graduating Caltech, you're graduating MIT, you are a coder, you're a software engineer, you're a programmer. Do you want to go and work on Wall Street, uh, this kind of embedded incumbent uh, where you're going to make good money and maybe get some shares? Or do you want to go and work for something like SoFi, where your starting salary might not be as big, but you're going to get a lot of shares. Those shares are going to grow in value over time. And you're going to have a chance to really make a ton of money. Like your upside potential is way bigger on the the SoFi route than it is on a, on a Goldman Sachs route. And so from that perspective, I think that a lot of the top talent that's coming out of these great schools, a lot of the engineering talent is flowing into the SoFi's of the world and not into Wall Street. And it's a huge problem with Wall Street. They're having a lot of problems with tracking and acquiring that talent. But because of that, that's why I think that the SoFi's of the world continue to build better product than more consumers use than what, you know, the JP Morgan's Bank of America's and Wells Fargo's build um, going forward. Um, and that's especially true for the Bank of America's and Wells Fargo's because, you know, Goldman, JP Morgan, they kind of have this like, I don't know, this exclusive luxury allure. Wells Fargo mm-hmm. and, and Bank of America don't really And so they're actually fighting an even steeper uphill battle than the rest of Wall Street. And those are the direct competitors of SoFi. So Mm -hmm. SoFi is for sure beating its direct competitors, direct legacy banking competitors when it comes to acquiring talent, getting that talent to build good products. So we really do believe that there's a lot of disruption about to unfold in this space and that Mm -hmm. in five years, the big banks will not be the big banks that they are today. Um, And there's going to be a changing the guard and SoFi is going to be the one that takes the the leadership role in this market. Well, talking about companies that are taking leadership roles in markets, uh, kind of what piggybacking off of last week, again, QuantumScape, kind of this leader in solid state battery technology. uh, The stock is, again, it's up just like pretty much everything else right now. Um, But there was some interesting news uh, that uh, a potential report from Volkswagen. Can you talk a little bit about that and what's going on there and how you're taking it? Right. So QuantumScape, um, Volkswagen has been a big backer and investor in QuantumScape for a long time. They poured something like $300 million into the company over the uh, the course of two or three years. Um, Volkswagen owns Porsche. And Porsche, there was a report that broke out of Germany yesterday that Porsche is going to integrate or is working with QuantumScape to integrate solid state batteries into its future electric cars, including an electric version of the, the, the super popular 911. Um, so that's the news that broke yesterday. We view it as pretty important news because QuantumScape is in the process of, as we talked about last week, going from science project to disruptive commercial business. Um, that mm-hmm. transition requires partners, auto OEM partners, 
to test and integrate your batteries, QuantumScape continues to land those partnerships. Porsche is just another win for them that basically marks QuantumScape's ability to sell customers on the idea, auto EMs on the idea, get them to test their batteries, and then hopefully down the road, get them to integrate it. They're progressing on that path in a way that we would want to see them progress for a company that's at the stage that they're at currently. So we view it as a pretty big win for QuantumScape, not to mention this is Porsche we're talking about, right? This is a luxury auto brand. They want to come to market with top of the line electric models. What's going to differentiate an electric car from a top of the line electric car from a Tesla or a Lucid or a Rivian? Mm-hmm. The differentiator may just be a solid state battery. And that seems to be the way that Porsche is playing this. They think that if they can come to market with an electric 911 that has a solid state battery, it's going to have significantly better performance than, you know, Tesla or a Lucid or a Rivian. And it will allow that car to differentiate itself in what is an increasingly crowded luxury EV marketplace. And so we do think that over the next three to five years, as that luxury EV marketplace gets more and more crowded, solid state batteries will be seen by auto OEMs, by those luxury brands as important differentiators in the marketplace, which will mean accelerated demand for QuantumScape's batteries. And accelerated demand means more revenues, more profits and a higher stock price. So we really like the news that hit yesterday. Yeah, the stocks been performing uh, incredibly well over the past two weeks, just like all hyper growth tech stocks. We think that rally has legs. We think that there's a lot of momentum here. We think 2022 could be a really big year for them. 2023, an even bigger year. This growth story is ramping. It's time to hop on the train. Well, another EV that's uh, in the news right now is Tesla uh, with uh, the announcement yesterday that they're planning on uh, asking, uh, voting on the splitting their stocks for the second time in two years. Uh, before yes. we kind of get into that, though, for our casual listeners and, again, people who may not know, can you talk a little bit about what it, does it mean when a stock splits? Yeah, great question. So a stock split is basically the issuance of new shares by a company uh, without diluting the current shareholder base. So let's say you own a share of Tesla stock and they split their stock. So what that means is that for every share, let's say they do a two for one split. For every share you own, you're now going to have two shares split. Three for one split. For every share you have, you're going to get three shares. Now, what that means is that the price of the stock gets halved by, you know, divided by two or divided by three, depending on the split. So the actual valuation of the company does not expand. What it simply does is it reduces the, 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 the sticker price of the stock and increases the number of shares that you personally own if you are a shareholder. So that's what a stock split is. Companies do this. Historically, they've done this to increase access to their uh, to their stock for investors to access their stock. Because let's say you're Amazon at a thousand dollar stock and, you know, not everybody can afford a thousand dollars. So you do a 10 for one split. Now you're at a hundred dollar stock. You didn't dilute your current shareholders. But now new shareholders can come in and buy the stock at a hundred. Um, so that's the whole thinking behind stock splits. That's the historical thinking behind it. Companies usually do it when they are, when management's usually approve and boards usually approve stock splits when they're very bullish on their stock. Because the reality is, as a management team, you like big stock prices. It's kind of like an ego thing. It's kind of like this, you know, um, 
I, you know, Amazon likes the fact that they have a $3,000 stock price. It's, it's kind of a sign of worth, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we put our stock up to a 3000 bucks. We're pretty good. We're pretty cool. <laughs> so management yeah. teams, boards, they love big stock prices. So if they're voting to and approving a stock split to reduce that stock price, they're probably doing so on the idea that they can once again elevate the stock price back to those super high levels. So that means innately, inherently, they're bullish on the company's growth prospects, on the prospects of the stock to once again roar back to those previous sticker price highs, so to speak. So splits mm -hmm. are usually pretty bullish. And in fact, in data dating back to 1980, after a company does a stock split, on average, it rallies about 25% over the next 12 months versus an average gain mm -hmm. of 9% for the S&P 500. So that's basically two and a half times outperformance of the S&P 12 months post stock split. So stock splits aren't just theoretically bullish. Data says they are actually bullish for stocks. With respect to Tesla, Tesla did a stock split in August 2020. Six months after that stock split, the stock rallied, I think it was about 180, 190% six months mm -hmm. after that stock split. So that's historically super bullish for Tesla. They're trying to do another stock split now, second stock split in less than two years. Last time you had 180% rally. Usually you have a 25% rally. So you're talking about history says Tesla stock could, could rattle off a 30, 40% gain here over the next six to 12 months based on the stock split alone. And that's pretty bullish. And we think it lines up fundamentally with what's going on in the electric vehicle space uh, today and for the rest of 2022. So color us bullish on all EV stocks and color us cautiously mm -hmm. bullish on, on Tesla stock. We do think there's some valuation concerns there that need to be warranted or that need to be um, examined. But beyond that, we do think that the EV space is is set for some pretty big gains here in 2022. Now, just a follow-up. You said that, uh, you know, traditionally, in theory, uh, when a stock splits, it's to make it more accessible. Again, making, if it's yeah. a $1,000 stock and you're dividing it to making a $100 stock to make it more accessible. But now that people can buy fractional shares, does that still matter? Well, not everybody can buy fractional shares, right? Not all brokerages offer fractional shares. Um, some do, some don't. Mm -hmm. So yes, that factor still matters um, in the in the calculus of stock splits. It matters in the calculus of dividends. Uh, I think the reason that Tesla wants to split its stock units is they want to pay a dividend um, to all its mm -hmm. shareholders. And doing so on a greater number of shares, a smaller dividend is more feasible, uh, more doable. So there are multiple reasons companies enact stock splits. Um, and the primary driver historically, the accessibility thing, is still a very real thing today, though it may become less and less prevalent as fractional shares become ubiquity in the market. Hmm. And is this something that you consider in your analysis or is it just, again, a short term catalyst for the next six months? Yeah, I do consider it in my analysis because, again, it goes back to the idea that to me, a stock split is a vote of confidence from the insiders. Uh, it's mm -hmm. another form of insider buying. Less bullish okay. than insider buying because insiders aren't actually putting their own money to work. But still bullish because of the idea that bragging rights. Management mm -hmm. teams, members, they want big stock prices. If they're voting to reduce that stock price, it's because they believe they can get that stock price back up. So Internally, I view it as a vote of confidence. That's the way I look at stock splits. They do make me bullish. 
I believe that this stock split from Tesla is a huge vote of confidence from Tesla management. And if the board approves from, the, from Tesla board uh, that Tesla can succeed and the electric vehicle sector can succeed in 2022, despite some ostensible headline risks, such as rising nickel prices, such as the war in Ukraine, such as COVID-19 lockdowns in China, despite those ostensible headline risks, Tesla is still looking to split its stock. That's pretty bullish from our perspective. I think what that says and what it confirms is that electric vehicle makers, strong electric vehicle makers can grow through the noise of 2022 and come out the other side uh, with record sales, record profits, record margins, and record high stock prices. So we're really bullish on the EV sector over the next 12 months, especially considering peace talks over in Russia and Ukraine are progressing in a favorable direction because we do believe there is going to be a diplomatic. We talked about this last week. We do believe there's going to be a diplomatic resolution to that situation. If there is a diplomatic resolution to that situation, then all of a sudden these soaring commodity prices, specifically with respect to EVs, these soaring nickel prices, these soaring industrial metal prices will stop soaring and they'll start coming down. If they start coming down, you're going to remove a massive cost headwind for electric vehicles, mm -hmm. which means that you're going to get more EV sales in 2022. So we think the headwinds are clearing up. The tailwinds remain strong. That sets the stage for EV stocks to have a pretty big uh, 2022. We are, for the last time, bullish. <laughs> well, again, taking a look at some of the, the outlook for 2022 with in regards to EVs and it being kind of this turnaround year for the EV sector, how much has the rising gas prices catalyst that we've discussed previously, um, how is that playing out and how is that factoring into people you know, at the very bare minimum, considering shifting from uh, gas to electric. Yeah, yeah. So, um, soaring gas prices have uh, historically strongly correlated with consumer interest in electric vehicles. You can look at a chart of Google Trends uh, going back to 2004, search interest related to electric vehicles. And you can directly correlate that to the national retail average gas price in the U.S. And it's a clear correlation. Mm -hmm. uh, when gas prices are rising, people are more interested in EVs. Uh, right now, people are more interested in EVs than they've ever been before because gas prices are higher than they've ever been before. And to that extent, the question mark is not around are consumers interested in EVs because of rising gas prices. They are. The question mark is around can the industry, can EV makers, can automakers convert that interest into demand? Can they take what is, mm -hmm. I'm Googling about this stuff, I'm searching it, I'm going to Edmonds, I'm looking up these cars to, I'm going to shuffle out $40,000, $60,000 to buy this car. What's that convert rate look like? We think that convert rate in 2022 is going to be stronger than it's ever been before because one, optionality increases. You're getting something like 40 or 50 new EV models in 2022, whereas regularly you get like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 new models per year, EV models in the US. This year you're getting like 30 or 40. So you're getting an exponential jump in optionality. And on top of that, 
these new models that are coming out, a lot of them are coming out with 35,000, 37,500, $40,000, $45,000 starting prices before tax incentives. So you're talking about new EVs that will be sold to Americans at post incentive prices of twenty five dollars to $35,000. That's dirt cheap for an electric vehicle. So not only do you get this exponential mm-hmm. jump in EV optionality, you get this exponential drop in EV costs. That coupling should dramatically increase the convert rate from interest to demand in 2022. And that's why we see EV sales really soaring this year with the initial impetus being soaring gas prices. But that's not what drives the whole trend. That's just the initial impetus. Net net, at the end of the day, we do see EV sales hitting record highs in 2022 and way above even consensus levels. And that'll power a big rally in EV stocks as a lot of them have been beaten up. They're starting to rebound. They got a long ways to go. We still see double, triple, quadruple gains from here over the next 12 months in certain EV stocks. Now, when a consumer, when you're talking about creating that demand for an electric vehicle and a consumer is kind of weighing their options and they're looking at the cost of of an EV versus the cost of a gas powered vehicle, the cost of gas versus the cost to charge versus, again, there are some additional costs aligned with an electric vehicle. You have to purchase a charger. You're going to be paying more on your electric bill. Uh, Like what does the service look like when this is a relatively new sector of in the automotive industry? Do those costs eventually balance each other out or are you still going to end up saving money uh, on an EV? No, there's, I mean, the, the maintenance cost of a gas powered car versus the maintenance cost of an electric vehicle, uh, the maintenance cost of an electric vehicle are going to be lower. Uh, and when you talk about the refuel cost, um, a new study just came out uh, two weeks ago. And that study showed that in the U.S., EVs are now anywhere from three to six times cheaper to drive than a gas-powered car, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the price of gas in your local geography. Here in California, it's probably 25 times cheaper because uh, <laughs> the price <laughs> of gas is so high. Uh, but um, no, the fact of the matter is over the life cycle of the vehicle, that's when your cost savings add up for okay. the electric um, because you're not paying for fuel. You're not paying for all the maintenance that comes with a gas-powered car. There are less moving parts in an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where your cost savings start to add up. You're going to take a hit on the initial sticker price. You're going to save money over the, the duration, the life, the life cycle of that vehicle. And at the end of the day, you're going to save money with, with the EV. And that calculus is only going to improve in favor of EVs in 22, 23, 24, 25. The gap's going to get bigger and bigger in favor of EVs. The bigger that gap gets the more consumers will shift to electric. And is there any indication of to, you know, what that shift is looking like right now with, you know, the rising gas prices and how uh, that's factoring into consumers th- at the very least, again, thinking about making that shift? Is there like a number that you have? Well, I mean, the number we're looking at and the trend we're looking at is the Google search interest trend for okay. um, electric vehicles. And that is at all time highs by a wide margin. So consumers are significantly more interested in buying an electric vehicle today than they've ever been before, even in 2020 and 2021, when this was a record hot industry. Uh, The numbers we're seeing, the leading indicator of sales that we're seeing today, search interest is absolutely soaring. I recommend, which would 
viewers should do, listeners should do is go to Google Trends right now, mm-hmm. type in electric vehicles and just look at that chart. And that'll tell you everything you need to know about why we're bullish on EV sales in 2022. Now, you also talked a little bit about price, again, kind of uh, the, the how the prices are going down for EVs, uh, you know, with them still also being relatively new. And, and you're talking about, again, they're coming out with 50 new ish models this in 2022 how are the how are the prices being so competitive right now with such a new technology well it's not that new right i mean we're we're 10 to 15 years into this game and the cost decline curves are starting to come into play meaningfully uh lithium ion battery costs which is the bulk of costs in the electric vehicle uh have plummeted they continue to decline every single year by a lot you're getting economies of scale in there. You're figuring out how to more cost-effectively mine the lithium, how to more cost-effectively manufacture the batteries. Companies are starting just to figure out the game. Remember, we talked about this. It's called the, the learning rates of these mm-hmm. technologies. The more you do something, the better you get at it, right? The more I, the more I mow my lawn, the more I, I water my grass, the more I feed my roses, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. the better I'm going to get at it. I'm going to learn, okay, you know, maybe I can only do a little bit here, a little bit there. I'm going to find out what the cheapest materials are at Home Depot and what may have took me, you know, a couple hours and a hundred bucks to do the first time I did it now takes me 30 minutes and $20 to do today, right? Over time, the more humans do something, the better they get at doing it. The more they learn about how to do it, the more they learn how to cost effectively produce those goods. That's the learning rate. The learning rates on EVs are very, very positive. The more companies do this, the more they figure out how to cost effectively produce these things. So how does new technology become cost competitive? Because people are learning about it Mm -hmm. and they're learning about how to make it cost competitive. And the result is that it is becoming cost competitive. And that is going to continue over the next several years, despite a lot of people concerned about the soaring metal prices, temporary phenomenon, Mm -hmm. not going to last. What's more important are the economies of scales being produced here. The fact that Tesla is building out its Berlin Gigafactory, the China Gigafactory, so on and so forth. The more cars these companies produce, the cheaper it is going to be to produce these cars on a per unit basis, the lower the sales prices of the cars are going to be. So that's a far more important, far more powerful, far more durable trend than what is a temporary spike in nickel prices that probably isn't going to last past the summer. So forget that. Focus on the big picture here. And the big picture is EV costs are going to keep declining and declining and declining and declining until by 2030, it's going to be literally no contest between the price of an EV and the price of a gas-powered car. The price of an EV is going to be 50, 60, 70% cheaper than a gas-powered car. The initial sticker sales price is going to be that much cheaper. That's why we're so confident that at that point in time, a majority of Americans will be driving electric so is it too late to get into these stocks given the recent rip or should people start taking no 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 no, not at all i would say it was it was too late in 20 so these stocks were kind of bumbling about Mm -hmm. 2017 2018 2019 and then 2020 they went like a skyscraper rocket ship straight up and then 2021, they took the elevator down and they went, came crashing down. <laughs> and now here in 2022, they're just starting to turn around. So this is the buy the turnaround moment. And mm-hmm. remember how we talked about, I believe we've talked about in these podcasts before, the hype cycles of technologies. Yeah. How you have the, the, the trigger, 
the peak of inflated expectations, the trial of disillusionments, and then the secular growth, right? Mm -hmm. We are right here at that, the trial of disillusionment, exiting <laughs> that, going into the secular growth. Mm -hmm. That's where we are with EVs. This is a perfect, perfect time to buy. 2020, 2019 was this, this tech trigger. 2020, late 2020, early 2021 was the peak of inflated expectations. We got 2021, early 2022 was a trial of disillusionment. Now we're exiting that, entering the secular growth phase. This is a great time to buy and hold electric vehicle stocks for the next few years. I think these stocks are going to go up 2x, 3x, 4x, some of them 5x or bigger. Great time to get in. You're not too late. We're just starting the U-turn. Awesome. Well, shifting gears a little bit and kind of getting into our general market checkup as we're starting to call it. Uh, the yield curve inver uh, is inverting, and more people are kind of paying attention to this. And it kind of coincides. We have a subscriber question, uh, which is asking you, basically, what are your views on the recession risk? As the big R word wasn't touched at all last week. Any comment, please? Many thanks. Oh, did we not say recession once last week? I don't think we, we've said it. We've definitely talked about it, but I don't think we talked about it last week specifically. In our general oh, market. how could I forget the R word? No, um, in all seriousness. Because um, <laughs> nobody wants to say the R word. That's why. <laughs> the uh, recession risks um, are very real. But what you have to understand is I'm looking at this from a stock market perspective. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the yield curve inversion real quick. Mm -hmm. Everyone is focused on the yield curve. And they should be. You know, yield curves, yield curve inversions have successfully predicted every single economic recession since 1980. So yield curve inversions are, are very significant and noteworthy. However, however, yield curve inversions are infamously early, mm -hmm. very early. They usually arrive, the past three yield curve inversions all happened about 20 months before the stock market peaked. And over that 20-month stretch, the stock market rallied. I think it was like 20% one time, 40% another time, and 30% the other time. So about 30% on average. Mm -hmm. So yield curve inversions, they do eventually lead to recessions. But eventually can take a while. Mm -hmm. And what history has shown, especially in the recent yield curve inversion cycles, is that the curve inverts. People freak out about a recession. And then they don't see the recession coming. So like, oh, yield curve is wrong. Let's let's go to the races. Let's let's let, let's play the game. And that's what happens. Yield curve inverts, 20 months, stock market rallies 30%. Then you hit the peak. Then, you know, stuff hits the fan. So <laughs> recession risk, still very real, still on the table. But yeah. to say that the yield curve is going to invert, let's get bearish, that is maybe the worst stance you can have because you're going to miss out on what could be a really, really powerful last hurrah, final party, so to speak, over the next um, the next few few years, even few months, two years. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's also really important to note here is that late 2018, the yield curve got really close to inverting, pretty much kind of like where we are today, like a mm -hmm. super flat curve. Then in 2019, we had this rip-roaring rally in the stock market, rip-roaring rally in risk assets. And it didn't look like we were going to go into a recession and we probably wouldn't have 
if it weren't for the COVID-19 pandemic, right? We mm -hmm. went into a recession in early 2020 because of something that nobody saw coming, yeah. a complete black swan risk that was not at all related to the yield curve. <laughs> and that was the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So if the pandemic had never happened, then we can't say whether or not that super flat yield curve in late 2018 would have led to a recession or not. So the yield curve inversion has somewhat lost its meaning in a world where the Fed is buying a bunch of bonds. It's somewhat lost its meaning in the world where there's a bunch of quantitative easing. Having said that, you still have to give it its its merit. You mm -hmm. still have to understand it as a very strong historical recession indicator. So you have to be wary of recession risk, but you also have to understand that yield curve inversions are actually near-term bullish indicators. And once it inverts, you usually get a big rally in the market. Then you got to monitor the recession risk there later thereafter. But from where we sit today, when we look at the macro geopolitical backdrop, we're seeing the Russia-Ukraine situation progress in a positive manner. We think a diplomatic resolution is going to happen there. China is locking down because of COVID-19, but we're still optimistic that given the government's comments, such lockdowns will be not long and right. will be not very impactful on economic activity over there. So we're, we're optimistic that the COVID-19 risks in China remain well-controlled. Mm. The Fed's got its rate, big scary rate hike out of the way. Now we're just in a rate hike cycle. How strong is the economy to withstand those rate hikes? We're starting to see some better data on the economic front. Uh, consumer confidence rose for the first time in 2022 in March. Housing prices are still skyrocketing. Uh, the labor market remains pretty tight. So we're starting to see um, the macro outlook mm -hmm. materially improve. And as it does improve, we're getting confident that investors should ignore the yield curve inversion um, and just look at what is a really risk on rally in equities and stick with that rally, understanding that maybe a recession is coming, but it's not coming in the next 12 months. It's more 24, 36 months out if it does happen at that point in time. You got to reassess these things on a, on a rolling six month mm -hmm. basis. So. I can't tell you what's going to happen 36 months out in terms of a recession. But what I can say is that if the yield curve inverts, that doesn't mean a recession is happening in 2022. It means that a recession may come in 23 or 24. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you should position your portfolio for today. I think it's actually time to get pretty aggressive. The risk on rally in equities is pretty strong. Well, I know you can't predict what's going to happen in 36 months from now, but Maybe you can give us a little insight to a week to what's happening a few days from now with the PCE numbers coming out. Do you have any ex expectations there? Inflation is going to be hot. Okay. Inflation is going to be hot for the next few months. It's wartime inflation. But I think that's – I think the inflation data is very unimportant right now mm -hmm. because – the inflation data is backward looking. We all know it's going to be hot. Nobody is going to argue the inflation reading is not going to be hot. We all know it's going to be hot. So if everybody knows it, the market's fully priced for it. Mm -hmm. What you need to pay attention to is how stuff is progressing in Ukraine, how stuff is progressing in China, mm -hmm. because how COVID-19 progresses in China, how the war progresses in Ukraine is going to determine the course of inflation over the next few months. I don't care what inflation did in February or March. Mm -hmm. It was hot. I know it. It's going to be hot in April too because gas prices are still soaring. Mm -hmm. I know it. I feel it. I don't need a data point to tell me that. Yeah. What matters is are Russia and Ukraine going to come to a diplomatic resolution? If yes, 
then sanction, the fear of sanctions and the sanctions that have already been imposed kind of wither away. The soaring commodity prices that we've seen wither away and inflation goes down. What about China, COVID-19? Is China going to get its COVID-19 situation under control? Are they going to adopt a uh, looser COVID control strategy? If yes to either of those, then manufacturing capacity in China is going to continue to improve and you're going to get lower inflation. So don't pay attention to the inflation reading, CPI, PCE. They're not really that important right now. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the developments which inform future readings. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to China, COVID-19. Pay attention to Ukraine war. We're seeing positive developments on Ukraine war. Mixed developments on China, COVID-19, and that's good enough for us to be constructive on the inflation front. If China, COVID-19 turns into a positive situation and the Ukraine war becomes even more positive with a diplomatic resolution, then you're going to see inflation become a significantly lower problem over the next few months. And that's what could lead to a really an accelerated risk on rally uh, in equities. Well, speaking uh, to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, uh, one of the things we talked about when that initially started was uh, cybersecurity. And we haven't talked about it for a few weeks. Uh, yeah. But one of the biggest concerns uh, in that conflict was the the idea of cyber attacks. Have there been cyber attacks transpired since last we spoke about cybersecurity? Uh, there, there's a cyber attack every day, Aaron. Another day, another attack. That's how this industry is because we are in a digital society where right. all the most important data workflows and information is stuck in digital worlds. And if you want to hurt somebody, you are hurt an organization, you go after their data, their information and their workflows. If those are all stored in digital worlds, then the way you hurt an organization or an entity is by digitally attacking them. So cyber attacks are just a part of life these days. Uh, they've been accelerated in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, the FBI, the United States government, so many different uh, government agencies have warned companies about the threat of cybersecurity attacks escalating here in, uh, in March and probably into April. We think that there's going to be elevated spend in that industry. The thesis remains the same. And we think cybersecurity stocks are due for a golden age here mm -hmm. in 2022. That extends many, many years. We don't think this is just a one and done war thing. The spike in oil prices is a one and done war thing because there's no secular driver there. But the spike in cybersecurity spending is not a one and done. It's durable because there is a secular driver here. And the secular driver is the fact that we are pivoting from an analog to a digital society Everything's in the digital world these days. That's what you need to store. Cybersecurity is, is mission critical to a company's operations in the 21st century. That's going to become more and more apparent uh, the deeper we get into 2022, the deeper we get into the 2020s. We love these stocks here. We love these stocks now. We love these stocks in 24. We love these stocks in 26. We love these stocks in 2080. We'll love them in 2030. These are great long-term growth stocks. So how much are companies currently spending on cybersecurity? Quite a bit. Um, I can pull up the actual number for you. Let's see. Uh, pull up my, my financial doc here. 
Um, the number is large, but it's very small as a portion of IT budgets. And mm-hmm. that's sort of where our long-term goal thesis comes into play mm-hmm. is that, let's see, I got the document open. Let me get to the correct sheet so I can get the exact numbers for you because that'll help frame the, the conversation. <laughs> Cybersecurity market. Let me get to my models here. So we're looking at about $150 billion in global cybersecurity spending in 2021, mm-hmm. which seems like a massive number, right? But yeah. then consider consider that global IT spending, information technology spending, mm-hmm. was $4.2 trillion in mm-hmm. 2021. Trillion with the T. So you're talking $150 billion out of a $4.2 trillion spending pie. So that's about a three and a half percent share of IT budgets. If I were to tell you, hey, you have this home and this beautiful home and you have all your important assets in life there, right? Mm -hmm. Your your wife, your kids, your your, you got the the safe with the money, you your cars, whatever it may be, all your important assets are in this home. And you're spending, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars on this home a year, Mm -hmm. maybe more. Who knows what it is? That's I'm using that to be. Uh, to make the numbers easy here. If I were to tell you that you're only spending $3,000 to secure that home, 3% of your budget on the mm-hmm. home to secure it, that would seem abysmally small. Yeah, right? that would seem kind like, of small. <laughs> you're going to want to spend a larger portion of your budget securing that home. When you look at a home, I mean, that's why you have homeowner's insurance, fire insurance, you have your home security systems. People spend a lot of money on that. A lot more than 3% yeah. of their annual housing budget goes to securing the home, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot more of a company's IT budget than 3% should go towards securing IT operations, securing the company. Mm-hmm. Right now we're at 3.5%. We think that number can easily go to 5%, 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%, 10% mm-hmm. by 2030. IT budgets are growing at a 5 to 6% rate per year. We get 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600 basis points of market share expansion, of budget share expansion in a 5% growing pie. And that's how you get an entire industry that grows at a 10% plus rate for the next five, seven, 10 years. That's the cybersecurity industry. We think that the companies that grow market share in cybersecurity mm-hmm. and are, you know, basically positioned for 15%, 20%, 25% plus durable revenue growth over the next five to 10 years, that sets the stage for some pretty remarkable gains in the stocks, especially since these are, for the most part, software-centric business models with 50, 60, 70% gross margins that are highly scalable. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see enormous profit production out of this 25% plus revenue growth Add it all up, and that's why we're, we're pretty constructive on cybersecurity stocks here and now and see these stocks rallying, not just for the rest of 2022, but for the next three, five, seven, ten years. They're, they're, like I said, really great long-term growth stocks to buy and hold. Now, when we, we started this conversation, you talked about how, again, we, we live in an in, virtually increasingly digital world where all the information, we want it to be protected. Uh, we hear a lot of a lot when a big attack happens, but we don't really hear about 
cybersecurity as we're discussing it in the media or in the investment world and not the way that you talk about it. And why do you think that is? No, great point. Great point. Uh, the reasons are twofold. One is it's not sexy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sexy sells. Cybersecurity is not sexy. How do you even explain cybersecurity? Right? Like okay. it's securing a company's operations. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people don't get it. It's not sexy. So that's the first reason. The second reason is it's not tangible. Mm -hmm. Who deals with a cybersecurity system? The folks in the IT department. Mm -hmm. That's that's it. Right? The the whole point of a flawless cybersecurity system is one where it doesn't even feel like I'm being protected because mm -hmm. I don't have to interact with those systems on a day-to-day -day basis. They just are actively protecting me. And I take that protection for granted, really. Yeah. So cybersecurity systems are not tangible at all to the everyday consumer, to the everyday worker. We do not interact with or see cybersecurity systems on a day-to-day -day basis or even on a week-to-week -week basis, month-to-month -month basis, if ever. Maybe the head of our IT department, our CTO emails us once every quarter and is like, please take this you know, security training examination to make sure you're up to speed on your security protocols. Mm -hmm. And that's the extent of our interactions with cybersecurity. Whereas an electric vehicle, I see a Tesla every day I go out, right? Yeah. Whereas social media platforms, I'm on them every single day. Whereas SoFi, I have the credit card that I use every single day. I'm checking the app every single day. Mm -hmm. Those are sexy industries. They're tangible industries. They are what people write about in the mainstream media because they are what people interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Cybersecurity is not that. So it is often shunned in the mainstream media because 99% of folks out there just don't really, they're like, oh yeah, it makes sense that this industry would grow, but um, how do I analyze a good cybersecurity system? Mm -hmm. Like how, how do I do that? I, I don't know. Like I, I don't know what's going on in this space because mm -hmm. I don't interact with it. So that's why I think that the mainstream media tends to shun um, cybersecurity stocks. And that actually creates, in my opinion, a really compelling opportunity to invest in these stocks because if they're not being covered, they're not being talked about, they're not being hyped up, that leads them to have pretty discounted valuations for really growthy um, types of, of companies. And that creates a great investment profile uh, to buy and hold shares. So again, another reason to, to be bullish on these stocks. Awesome. Well, again, shifting gears a little bit into our crypto check check in. Uh, Bitcoin yeah. and Ethereum, uh, you know, had a breakout. They followed by all the altcoins. Um, mm -hmm. We got a question from uh, Fred James that kind of coincides with this. Uh, basically, what are your thoughts on the long term outlook for Ethereum? Ethereum anchors my crypto portfolio. Right. Right. Yeah. Great question. Um, so let's just talk about the the crypto markets briefly, real quick. Um, so Bitcoin was kind of doing this, this coiling action. We talked about it last yep. week, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Doing this coiling action of higher, uh, higher lows and lower highs, mm -hmm. penny we were talking about. And that was either going to result in a breakout or a breakdown, depending mm -hmm. on how the macroeconomic environment uh, shaped out. The macroeconomic environment is shaping out very favorably. Risk assets are soaring. We have noted Bitcoin's correlation, crypto's correlation to Kathy Wood's ARK complex, to the high growth stocks in the U.S. stock market. And that correlation has remained true because both are breaking out in a significant way. Mm -hmm. So such breakouts tend to have legs. 
We think that the near-term, medium-term outlook for cryptos is pretty constructive. We actually just issued a new wave of buys in our crypto products last week to play this breakout because we think there's legs here. So putting money where our mouth is, where our mouths are, and um, we're pretty constructive on where not just Bitcoin goes over the next three to six months, but where altcoins go over the next three to six months because history shows us that when Bitcoin breaks out, altcoins tend to break out by more. They're basically levered plays on, on Bitcoin. So we're pretty bullish on the outlook for altcoins to head materially higher over the next three to six months. Mm -hmm. Moving to Ethereum, Ethereum is in the near term going to track Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. If Bitcoin moves higher in the way that we expect it to as it correlates with a risk on move in equities, then Ethereum will head higher as well. Long term, we like Ethereum as a blockchain project. We think that it has lower upside potential than other altcoins because of its current valuation. It bakes in quite a bit. We are a bit concerned by the developer Exodus that we continue to read about every single week from Ethereum to other layer ones because of numerous reasons, but foremost, the high gas fees on Ethereum, which is a very expensive mm -hmm. platform to develop on. So that is concerning. Having said that, it's sort of a balancing act where if enough people leave Ethereum, the gas fees come down so people will come right back to Ethereum because it excels pretty much everywhere else. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum is never going to take over the world, but Ethereum is forever going to remain a very important and very large component of the blockchain economy. And that's why we are bullish on the long-term growth prospects of Ethereum. But do not believe if you were to graph the layer ones, layer one alts over the next 10 years, their performance, we think that Ethereum will be very middle of the road. The mm -hmm. rising tide will lift all boats. Ethereum will get lifted with it because it will forever remain a central component of the blockchain economy. But it will not gain market share in the layer one world. And the market share gainers are going to be the ones that have the biggest gains. Therefore, we like Ethereum long term, but do not love it and think that there are other layer ones that offer higher upside potential over the next five to 10 years. If you're looking to long term hodl these these cryptos. Awesome. Well, we got a few more fan questions. Uh, Mia T. Luke, what do you think of AI companies, uh, UiPath and Palantir Tech? Is this a buy or a wait and see? Double thumbs up. Buy on both. Okay. Uh, UiPath is a fabulous automation company. Mm -hmm. They're building little software robots. They're going to go around and, and automate a bunch of enterprise workflows. And what a lot of people miss about the automation megatrend is they always think of like physical robots, mm -hmm. like uh, like the Flippy that, that flippy. flips burgers at restaurants or the Chippy that makes chips at restaurants or the, <laughs> the warehouse robotics that go through and package mm -hmm. goods. But a lot of the automation megatrend, in fact, the bulk of the automation megatrend will be software algorithms. Mm -hmm. There'll be software robots that you don't see that just automate simple workflows and in some cases, complex workflows, because a lot of the work we do on a day-to-day -day basis is digital, is done mm -hmm. on a computer, is done in the cloud. Therefore, it doesn't need to be done by a physical robot. It can be automated by a software robot. And a lot of that work can be modeled by data. UiPath has a robust data set to model these workflows, is creating software robots to learn about these workflows and complete these workflows. We think that enterprise automation is a huge megatrend of the 2020s. UiPath is the unprecedented leader 
in robotic process automation, RPA, that's the, the kind of business term for it. So we think UiPath has very good growth potential. We think the stock is very undervalued, very beaten up. We love the team. This is one of those names that if you're looking to go shopping right now and mm -hmm. buy this around, buy this U-turn in, in hypergrowth tech stocks, UiPath should be on your shopping list. I think it's a fabulous company with a very, very, very depressed stock. And the upside potential from current levels is very large. Now, Palantir, also a very impressive company. The tech there is bar none the best of any data science platform out there. Um, we have some pretty advanced data science people on our team. Um, they played with the Palantir platform. They understand what's going on there and they are just blown away by what this platform can do and what it is able to do relative to, let's say, an Alteryx or any other sort of data science platform out there. Um, Palantir is just basically kicking butt and taking names. Um, and we really like that company long-term as well. We really like that stock at current levels, very undervalued. We think that stock goes to 20 bucks in 2022. We think it goes higher in the long-term. So another great name to buy the dip on. Uh, two thumbs up on both those stocks. Love them both. All right, and last question, our boy, Rob Norman. Another Rob. question for Luke. Uh, Luke, have you ever heard of Momentus? $3 stock, transportation company working with SpaceX. Yeah, yeah. So Momentus has a really interesting and convoluted story. Uh, Momentus <laughs> is, is, is they are a space company. They developed this really cool water propulsion technology um, that is essentially allowing companies to move things in space. So a big part of space, right, is we don't just have to like get satellites into space via mm -hmm. rocket. Once they're in space, we have to get them into the correct orbit, the correct positioning. So we have to also move things in space. Momentus has built a proprietary technology that they claim is the most efficient way to move things in space, this water propulsion tech, mm -hmm. um, and safest way to move things in space, hence the water. Um, very interesting technology. It appears to work based on the analysis we've done. But <laughs> it sounded a, like there's a butt coming on that one. Yeah, there, there's there's this really convoluted and weird backstory with the founder and there's Russian ties and the U.S. government was concerned about the leaking of information to Russian government because of his Russian ties. And this mm -hmm. is very like high security stuff. We're talking about space stuff. You know, this goes all the way back to the, the Cold War and the space race. Um, so he got kicked out. There's some other Russian I, it's like a really messy story mm -hmm. and it's so messy that basically we looked at the tech, loved it, saw the story and we're like, um, you know, maybe next time. Okay. Uh, we, we, I have not checked up on it since this whole kind of U S investigation, government investigation went down, um, on the stock, on the company. Uh, it's probably worth another look here. I'll definitely give it another look. But I think that the reason I haven't been really aggressive on it is there are a lot of space plays out there. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, all of them have been beaten up. Mm -hmm. A lot of them offer tremendous upside potential. And some of them 
most of them do not have these Russian overhang risks. So mm-hmm. from a capital allocation perspective, if you're looking to play space, mm-hmm. I think there are much better stocks out there than Momentus at the current moment in time. That's not to say Momentus won't work. It mm-hmm. might work be a grand slam from current levels. Mm-hmm. But I think there are better names out there with just as much upside potential, let, yet less downside risk, and they don't have that Russian overhang. So those are the names I'd be focused on if you're looking to play space, not momentous at the current moment. Well, Luke, as always, this has been an, another amazing discussion. Uh, your insights continue to amaze me. We've covered so many topics today, and you just it didn't had an answer for everything, uh, which, again, I think just speaks to all the research, everything that you do on a week-to-week basis that just brings uh, our listeners the, the insight that I don't think they can get anywhere else. Um, but any last words before we wrap? Any last words before we wrap? Nope. I'm good, Aaron. We covered quite a bit. I'm really happy that we're talking about some really interesting interesting topics here. And um, I'm really looking forward to where markets go over the, well, we'll talk again next week. So let's just say over the next week. But I do think that we are in the early stages of forming another hyper growth tech bull market. Uh, some of the stocks that, that we cover and, and that we, we look at very closely are up 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% over the past two weeks alone. This is enormously positive price action. We see it persisting. Uh, and so we're really encouraged by what the next few months could hold for, for hyper growth tech stocks, the very type of stocks that we talked about in this podcast. So on that note, we're very positive and we look forward to sharing a lot more insights with everybody over the next few weeks, months, and hopefully years, right? We're in this game for years, we're, right? We're in this for the long run, yeah. We're in this for years, that's yeah. what I thought. Well, thank you, Luke, and thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics you'd like us to cover to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.